This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. You can mix a buffer, you can mix a gin and tonic. My PBS is shaken, not stirred. You may not ever forbid you to have a podcast. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we dip into the mailbag and answer your questions. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 96. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy summer, Dan. It is a happy summer. It is. You, you've been traveling a little bit. I got back from vacation a week or two ago. Yeah, we are in the throes of warm weather. It's World Cup? I don't know. what <laughs> World Cup. We've been yeah. watching the... No, you have it. Yeah, it's on at work sometimes. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I do actually catch it. I, I find it bizarre because I don't watch any sports whatsoever, but if it's on, I kind of like transfixed by You think it. it's exciting? Uh, yeah, some of the games are interesting, yeah. yeah. And and most of the time, I just sit at my desk, and then if I hear somebody yell, I'll walk over, watch the replay for two seconds, and then head back to my desk. Uh, speaking of warm summer days, Dan, nothing like a cold beer to cool you off, and we have one. And Dan, this is not just any beer. This is listener beer. Our favorite kind. Yeah, this was kindly sent to us from Matthew, who is a grad student at the University of Utah. Yeah, didn't it take us a long time to get a Utah listener, like two years ago? I remember we were, maybe it was Wyoming. No, it was, uh, it was Oregon. It was Oregon, Surprisingly, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I remember because... All those states out west. Well, there were all these states that were also the worst beer states, except for Oregon, which is the number one beer state, but we did not have a listener from Oregon. Oh, you have a very good memory. Well, we have a Utah beer now. I think this may be our first. I think it is, and this, it actually... Uh, Matthew sent us three different beers. Thank you, Matthew. From Utah. But we're going to sample this one tonight. This one struck me as interesting. Um, and ironically, my wife just got back from Salt Lake City where this beer came from. Awesome. So this is from Epic Brewing. And Epic apparently brews beer in Denver and Salt Lake City. And I read that Epic is Utah's first brewery since Prohibition to brew exclusively high alcohol content beers. First brewery since Prohibition launched in 2006, (laughs) right? It is possible. But one thing that's also interesting about Epic Brewing is they produce their bottles in these 22-ounce, 1.5-pint size. You can see, Dan, these are pretty large bottles. So you just gave me two warning signs, Josh. You said a large 22-ounce bottle and a high alcohol content? Yep, that's why, though Matthew sent us three of these beers. We are, we are not, not chugging them tonight. We're only drinking one, one at a time. So the what's, one we, the, what's the percentage on this one? Uh, so this is a 9.9%. And I don't think you've said the name yet, have you? I have not. Okay. So we are drinking the Brainless on Peaches Belgian-style ale. And, and this one, apparently the Brainless uh, is a Belgian-style ale that they normally do, but this one's special because they have added pureed peaches and aged it in French oak Chardonnay barrels. Wow. Okay, so I'm expecting Belgian. I'm expecting a little more sugar. Let me take a taste. Yeah. What do you think? What are you getting? I didn't know exactly what to expect because this does not look... Uh, this is straw-colored. And, and when you set it down in front of me, I expected Pilsner. 
and that is not the flavor that I came up with. There's a there's a hint of Belgian in it. There's some spice, but uh, the first taste I get is is like a sour. It's it's not on the end of sour beer, but there is a little bit of acidity, probably from the peaches. Yeah, there's a little tanginess. Uh, I agree, not to the level of a sour beer, but also like a Belgian beer. There's certainly that that thicker, maltier character. Uh, that goes along with the Belgian beer. You get in the peaches. Yeah, it doesn't look like it tastes, does it? I expect a kind of a darker color, and um, I don't know. I, I actually, I'm I'm enjoying this quite a bit. The I think really cold summer day, perfect beer. I do get a little bit of peach out of it. Do you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Of, there's definitely a lot of flavor coming through. I'm trying to decide. I don't know if I'm getting much of the oak, um, to be honest. But I can Isn't almost that oaky enough for you. Well, you know, I almost can get a little hint of Chardonnay in there. What do you think? That's the power of suggestion. <laughs> I like it, and I think I'm getting more interested in Belgian beers. Maybe we need to have a Belgian beer kick. Yeah, we could do that. There's be a fun. lot of really great Belgian beers out there. I'm uh, getting old, Josh. I'm getting off the IPAs and into the Belgian. <laughs> Matthew, thank you for sending these, and we will certainly be sampling a couple more of these epic brewing beers that I still have in my fridge, including one IPA. Slowly, one at a time, right? One at a time. Uh, also, Dan, besides listener beer, I have some more good news. We have a new Patreon patron. Oh, great. Special thanks to Eben, who is our newest supporter of the show. Thank you so much. We will see you in the devoted Slack channel for uh, Patreon patrons. That's right. Uh, I've been on vacation. I've been out of the Slack channel. I got to jump back in. I see someone posted photos of these delicious donuts the other day. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. So people have time to bake. I love it. If you want, they were homemade, homemade donuts. Yeah, they were. So they if great. you would like to discuss, discuss grad school life, science, donuts. and see delicious donut photos, share your baking photos, uh, that's happening in the Slack channel. So. Absolutely. And of course, we want to thank Promega, who is uh, one of the sponsors for this episode. And they want to remind you that Sometimes experiments don't work and maybe you don't have all the answers, but that's okay because Promega's technical support team is there to answer your random questions. How do you interpret these results? What reagents should you be using? What does the protocol step mean? Um, there's actually a team of scientists out there that uh, you can call chat or, or chat online and they will get you the help you need. Just go to promega.com slash PhD support. Yeah, we got a link also right on our website. And if you click that, it takes you right to the support page. And I love this text chat. I think also if I feel lonely during the day, I'm just going to hit this text do chat. Not, do not abuse the kindness oh. of these scientists, oh, Josh. Okay. We should call them sometime. I think it'd be fun to we should. We call ask them, them on random the show. questions. Yeah. Not tell them we're calling. Yeah. My Eco R1 Digest. <laughs> Echo R1? Echo. See? I'm, See? You, <laughs> I've been they'll tell you. Long. They will tell you the answer to That's that. That's what I'm going to ask. So, Dan, did you ever watch Blue's Clues? Never. Uh, well, I debated pulling up the sound clip of Steve singing, We Just Got a Letter. Did you ever hear that? That has not entered my psyche. So uh, we just got a letter. We just got a letter. You ever hear that? Uh, no, I have not. Well, when I was in college, email was a newer thing back then. And I kid you not, the entire time I was in college for four years, every time I checked my email and I had messages, that song, that little jingle would Oh, yeah, play. you used to have a sound. I, yeah. I did the same thing. You would have a sound when something new came in because it was rare enough. Now it's like, <laughs> shut oh that stuff gosh. off. It'd be so annoying. Every time I had an email. I Actually, I literally never have sound on my phone. My phone is always silenced. I just can't stand the sound. That's the way to go. So we got a bunch of emails, um, and we've gotten emails 
for a while, the the question is sometimes, is there enough here for a full episode? We wanted to kind of go rapid fire on some of the emails we've gotten recently and put them together for one episode. So let's start at the top, Josh. All right. So this first one comes from Megan from the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. And Megan said, every summer I work with a small group of undergrad students interested in graduate or professional school and research. And I've already begun recommending episodes to this summer's group. I like that. Hello, PhD. Changing young minds. Yeah, I like it. I'm a little frightened. Good. Uh, I think I'm going to switch up my syllabus and assign them episodes 38 and 39 about mentorship because it is such an important topic and I don't think my students quite realize how important it is. We're on the syllabus now. (laughs) We've really made strides, Josh. We're three years in, yeah. Yeah. I've also recommended to the other staff members from that summer program because I think a lot of your episodes apply to grad students across disciplines and not just those in STEM. This is the best podcast I listen to it whenever I'm walking on campus or driving. Keep up the great work. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, the rest of the the letters I picked out are hate mail, but I wanted to start with a really nice one. And actually, I really do love the idea that we're able to be part of training. And what I love even more is that Megan is taking the time to work with incoming students and to help them understand what they're getting into. That's awesome. I hope more more students do that. Yeah, I am, and I'm really, really glad that she specifically picked up on this idea of the importance of mentorship. So anyway, glad to hear that, Megan, that you are sharing that information uh, where you are. That's awesome. Well, let me read the next one. Okay, here's one that we'll keep anonymous. Hi there, I just got to listen to your podcast. The mental health one made me cry so that I needed to stop the car on the roadside because it resonated with me so much. Thank you, guys. That's uh, that, She's referring to the episode on pH depression, episode, which one was that? It was episode 93. 93. Yep. Yeah, uh, the grad school mental health crisis and what you can do about it. Yeah. And I think that's a topic that's resonated with a lot of our listeners uh, looking at the downloads of that one. And I think that's a topic we certainly will we'll talk about again on the show. Yeah. We've got some ideas in the pipeline uh, for, for doing some interviews on that. But she goes on to say, is it possible to talk about PhD students' career when graduating from a relatively small school? I am now in a much smaller institute, and I am bombarded with my advisor's opinion, like, you need to compete with students from good schools, not from this small school, or people who are saying, you are in such a bad place for studying a PhD. I don't know if someone ever discussed this topic, but I really want to see how we PhD students from smaller, not that great ranking schools strive. It seems like I need to be in a top 10 program to have a future that is good. Thank you for the podcast. Josh, ideas, thoughts? Well, that's a that's a... That's a great question and a great comment. And, you know, why? I don't know why. It seems like this advisor maybe has a little chip on his or her shoulder, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's a weird thing to say to somebody you're mentoring. Or you're I, terrible. Why don't you do better? Everything you do is wrong and you can't change it. Uh, yeah, I almost wonder if it's a weird what, controlling thing of uh, saying, well, I need you to work hard just because you're going to have to work harder so you can compete with these nameless, faceless uh, people from this great school. Interesting insight. Yeah, using the small school as a way, as a stick to kind of encourage progress. But that may not be, you know, that may not be it. You know, the advisor may really just be looking out for you and wanting you to succeed. Um, But I do have some thoughts about this. So there's a faculty member that I know fairly well um, who actually I found out she just got an R01 grant recently, which is exciting. Um, But anyway, I know she went to a fairly fairly small PhD program, certainly not a top 10 or even top 50 program. And I've heard her talk about how important that was in her career development, how coming out of undergraduate, her confidence maybe wasn't as high, and and she would have been 
really lost at sort of a large, fast-paced, top 10 research institution. You know, she might have done fine, but her perspective was, you know, the support that she got and, and the way she was able to develop in the school that she did go to, the program she did go to, she felt was instrumental in the success she had later. And so she actually transitioned um, after finishing her PhD to a postdoctoral position at a school that, that is a little more well-known uh, because she did have this idea that she wanted to be a faculty member. And, and so I, I do think there is something to the fact that if you have the name of these top programs on your CV, your path might be a little easier because I think for better or worse, there can be a bias a bias for some of these places. However, I think at the PhD level, there's a lot to be said for, uh, I don't think everybody has to go to Harvard or Stanford. In fact, if you go to any of your departmental seminars, you know, I always think it's interesting to see where different people come from. And, and they're doing their graduate degree at lots of different places. Yeah, and I think um, for this, this listener, if you are intending to go on to a postdoc, then your ability to meet um, potential postdoc advisors uh, by going to conferences, by emailing them, by meeting them on Twitter, whatever it is, and forming that relationship beforehand, I think is going to show them that you are a strong student who does well in research. And I think that's what matters. It's less about the pedigree of your particular university and more about how are you going to fit into that new lab? How are you going to show that you can contribute and that you've done well uh, at what you've done? I don't think the name of the school is going to be that important if you really come across as a an active researcher with a lot of talent that, that is going places. So. And, a, and a lot of interest and engagement in the field. And, and I think if you're productive and you publish papers, um, you know, you're going to be fine. You know, and I think actually, Dan, I've spent um, quite a bit of time, you know, visiting schools that, that aren't top 10 programs. And, and sometimes it's interesting when I meet with faculty and, and students there, it almost strikes me. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is just anecdotal, but some seems to me like scientists tend to be more creative in smaller schools, uh, maybe because there are less resources, abundant resources. And so there's a certain degree of resourcefulness and creativity that, that you're forced to have at a smaller school that maybe you wouldn't have at a bigger school. What do you think about that? Yeah, I like that idea. A little more scrappy, a little more resourceful. Um, so hopefully that's helpful. And uh, if people have experience with this, you can write to us or uh, find us on Twitter and we will try to forward those messages to this listener. Yeah, especially if you went to a really small school for your PhD and you're beyond that now. Maybe talk about that experience and maybe how that was was helpful to you or you felt like it did hold you back. What was your experience with that? Awesome. Let's read the next one. Hi, hello, PhD. First, love your podcast. Second, the question, old slash career changer PhD candidates. Opinions? How do they fare in the acceptance department? Do they have any advice for older PhD candidates or those thinking about pursuing a PhD as a career changer? Thanks, Christina. Yeah, so this is a great question, too, about going back to school, starting a PhD as a non-traditional student, where maybe you are um, a few years or many years out, outside of undergrad, or you're just... Um, you you started your undergraduate training uh, later in life. Uh, first of all, this is a topic we talked about on a show a long time ago. It was back in episode 10, which was almost three years ago, Dan. Um, and we had an episode called, Am I Too Old to Go Back to Grad School? And we talked to um, Robin, who now is actually a faculty member, and she started graduate school in her 30s. 
and became a faculty member in her 40s and is doing quite well. Um, but I want to say off the bat, um, as someone involved in admissions for graduate school, you actually legally can't bias based on age. So, you know, your question, um, how do older applicants fare in the acceptance department? The the answer should be equally well <laughs> with with applicants of any age. If you're 75, you should have the same shake as a 26-year-old, right? You should. You should. I mean, that's not to say that that people don't have biases that uh, certainly there are biases that that's that cut in a lot of different directions but theoretically you should have the same just just based on your age alone um, shouldn't impact your your admission if you're 106 i would worry about you finishing <laughs> in time but the journey could still be yeah, our actuarial yeah. tables yeah. might might go against you but one thing that i think is important here is actually think more people should reevaluate their careers when they're older. You know, I always, I can remember being an undergraduate on the very first day of, of school, being in this room um, and they were talking to all the freshmen and, and just feeling this pressure to know what I wanted to do with my life. And, and, you know, it really felt to me like this pressure that I had to pick something, even though I really was not basing that decision on, any real information about what I wanted to do, but just, well, I have to pick something. And, and you know, it is kind of weird. We asked 20-year-olds to decide their entire life. Pick a track path. and get on it, yeah. Yeah, doesn't that seem really odd? It, I mean, it does, yeah. I mean, how much less did you know about yourself at 20 than, than you do today? Well, and I think part of that is that we don't do a very good job of teaching people how to understand what they would enjoy. But that being said, yes, I, I don't know. If you go into a PhD program, maybe you're like me, Josh, you succeed at school, you do well changing topics and focuses as you go through your courses and go through your research because you love learning. And so people like that, I feel like, you know, when you're 35 or 50, you're going to find out what I really love is backgammon or what I really love is biotech or what I really love is painting. And you're going to want to reinvent yourself. And I think... Uh, if you come to the conclusion when you're a little bit older that I want to really go deep on a research topic, do it. What's, I, there's nothing There's nothing that should stop you from that. And I think uh, you're kind of denying the rest of us the scientific discoveries that you're going to make. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know just personally speaking, you know, people that I knew who were graduate students that were a little bit older, that had had some life experience and work experience first, they seem to be some of the most focused and engaged students, probably for that reason. They were there because they had decided, you know, they had tried several different things out and decided that science and research was the thing they wanted to do. So, you know, I think what is important, though, is, is sometimes during your undergraduate years when you're younger, it can be easier to plug into these entry-level positions and research programs. It's almost like these programs are tailor-made for students of that age to get experience that helps you be competitive for graduate school. So I think what is important is making sure you still have the right experience. Um, if you're changing careers, that you've been able to find some opportunities to do research and work in a lab, which you need to have done anyway to make sure that going into a science-based PhD program is what you want to do. Totally, yeah. Um, but you know what I would do is, is being a non-traditional candidate is in some ways going to set you apart from the average applicant, which is a good thing because a lot of these programs are really competitive. So what you want to do, I think, is to leverage that and spin that as a strength, you know, really rely upon the fact that you've had more life experience, you've had more work experience, you've gained more skills and talk about you're the more self-aware, you're more self-aware, you know why you're doing this, you know what you're getting into 
and why those skills you have built will directly help you in a research-based PhD program. Now, this is one I would like to hear back on. So uh, for this particular listener, Christina, if you decided to go or if you are deciding to go, we'd love to hear from you to find out what you, what you chose. You want right, to read this one? Or you wanna re- yeah, let me read one. You go ahead. Let me read one. Okay. One thing that I would love to hear y'all's opinion on is getting involved in clubs while in grad school. I very consciously made a decision upon entering grad school to have a life outside my research. I'm interested in knowing what kind of clubs we're talking about. Dance clubs. You'll find me at the club. Biker clubs. Yeah. (laughs) Golf clubs. Golf clubs. Uh, I'm heavily involved in leadership of our campus's Graduate Student Association, which has given me tons of experience interfacing with faculty and university administration that I think will be helpful when I someday hope to become a faculty member myself. Fingers crossed. I've also had the opportunity to bartend at and manage the graduate student pub and kick some undergrad butt in intramural sports. Obviously, I love being involved and doing things outside of lab, and I think it's really valuable. So far, this sounds amazing. Yeah, I want to pause here, Dan, because I actually know this is a student from Rice University, and um, we've been contacted by students from Rice University before to let us know that Rice University is unique in that it has a graduate student pub run and four graduate students on campus. We need to be invited to this place. Uh, no. So I looked this up. It's called Valhalla, Rice's graduate student pub. And apparently it started 40 years ago as a place for grad students to hang out, relax, and socialize after a long day of school and work. And it's staffed completely by grad students and alumni volunteers. How cool is that? Uh, I hate to invite ourselves places, Josh, but we do <laughs> like to do live recordings on location at uh, graduate student pubs. There are lots of anywhere they happen. There are lots of great direct flights to Houston. Uh, so. Awesome. Okay, just suggesting it. Okay. There's more to this email, though. Uh, so this is from Catherine from Rice University, and Catherine um, likes to do all these clubs. But however, she said, "I often feel like I need to hide my involvement from my PI for fear I'll get in trouble for doing things outside the lab with my additional time." And this is a fear I hear a lot from grad students that prevent them from getting involved in the university outside their research. I don't think it's fair expectation for grad students to spend literally all of our time sleeping in the lab, but it's definitely the culture, and I'm often tempted to feel bad when I know I'm not working as many hours on my science as some other folks in my cohort, even though I think I'm making at least equal progress on my project. And this is from Catherine. Josh, uh, we believe strongly in two things. Number one is maintaining your mental health in graduate school. And obviously that entails doing things that you love, even if those things are not scientific research. It's great. We love that you love scientific research, but it's also okay to love intramural sports and to get the benefits of exercise and the companionship and the fun. And it's okay to go out and have a beer once in a while or even to bartend, which I think is a, is a great thing. That's really fantastic. And the other thing is, I think, Josh, you know more about this, uh, that by participating, by being part of these events and activities, you may actually do better at completing your, your work. Yeah, we actually collect some, some data um, at, at my university on students who spend time doing career and professional development and, and basically doing these things outside of the lab to think about their careers and build skills uh, beyond just the research lab skills. And we find that those students are just as productive as far as publishing papers and maybe even graduate a little faster than those who keep their heads down at the bench. And, you know, personally speaking, it has always been important to me to be involved in things outside the lab. And, and even now in my job, I have lots of things going on that have nothing to do with my job. And if someone were to tell me, 
Josh, you are not allowed to do any of those things you enjoy. You can only focus on your job. I guarantee my productivity at work would tank. Can you imagine that workplace, though? (laughs) What kind of horrifying dystopian novel would you be living in where they said you may not podcast now? You may not. I forbid you to have a podcast. (laughs) Ain't happening. Um, And graduate students are people, too. So uh, we like the, the idea of you being able to go out and do those things that make you happy. I'm interested, Josh, in your thoughts on the hiding from the P.I., is that necessary or what's yeah. the impact of that? Yeah, well, I, I'm curious because what we there's a lot we don't know here um, because Catherine said she often feels like she needs to hide that involvement. So I'm, I'm curious if that's based on witnessing a PI's, the PI's reaction to other students who are doing things outside the lab or maybe side comments or something like that. Um, or if it really is just this fear based on this overarching culture where grad students have this idea that they should have to chain themselves to their lab bench. You know, I think certainly, you know, there's a lot of truth in some of these things you're saying as far as being involved in your graduate student association. We say it all the time, but some of those experiences may help to set your your CV apart when it comes time to apply for jobs. And you're building a lot of useful skills, a lot of communication skills, problem-solving skills, uh, just working with people skills, doing things like that that you're not getting um, in the lab. And bartending, if the you know if grad school didn't work out. You can mix a good gimlet. You're yeah. doing all right. <laughs> you can mix a buffer. A nice skill to have. You can mix a gin and tonic. I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> My PBS is shaken, not stirred. But seriously, Rice students, call me. Um, they use stir bars in their uh, cocktail mixing. That'd Maybe be you get the little well, stir bar thing. That's true. You remember we used to go to that bar, Dan, that had the beakers yep, for the to mix the drinks. We loved and they wore it. lab coats. That was it cool. Was fantastic. Uh, you going to read uh, this one? Yeah, I'll read this. No, I'll, I'll read this. We have no order in who's reading these. That's okay. Chaos here in the set. Hello. I just discovered your podcast and I love it. I have a question and maybe a recommendation for a new episode. Could you please recommend any possible ways to keep in touch with other researchers for PhD students living or studying in remote locations? For instance, I'm currently studying in a very remote town in Japan, and there's only a handful of PhD students at my university, and only perhaps two or three of them speak English, and I have yet to chase them around the campus. (laughs) Rule number one, do not chase PhD students. They're skittish. Yeah, you might be less likely to... uh, Start a friendship with people you chase. Start to frighten friends and make enemies. Uh, I know for a fact that you have to constantly interact with other professionals in your field and other closely related fields, too, in order to keep your memory and skills fresh. But I was wondering if there's a public platform or a discussion board for that. I found that, for instance, a lot of PhD students spend their time on Quora, some certain subreddits and mailing lists dedicated to obscure technologies that they had to use for their work, but I'm looking for something more casual like Facebook, Skype, Slack, IRC, etc. discussion groups. Thanks in advance, and please don't stop doing the podcast. Best regards, Bector. Josh, I am. I, I just think of uh, your immersion into Twitter as... I think it, it fits what Bector's asking for. It's a way to have public discussions with other scientists. It is... Uh, you can find very tiny niches of people who care about the same thing you care about. You can establish yourself as a, an expert in that field. Um, that was episode 69, five ways scientists should be using Twitter. Any, any thoughts on whether that's the right format for somebody in a remote part of Japan? Yeah. So that was, that was definitely my first, the first thought that came to mind was if you're not already jump on Twitter and get involved in science Twitter. 
you know, Twitter gets a very bad rap for being a cesspool <laughs> at times. But the beauty of Twitter, one of the things that I love about it is you can really tailor your Twitter feed for very, to very specific purposes, to very specific topics that interest you. Uh, so I have a Twitter account that I use for basically just my science and professional stuff. And so when I log on there, that's when I want to see, read and see about science and graduate school and things like that. And so, uh, so you can do that, go on there and follow people who are scientists in your field, um, who are other um, science communicators, grad students. And very quickly, you really do develop these, these almost relationships um, that sometimes I've seen in a lot of instances develop into um, real friendships and real connections in the real world, um, maybe as you go to similar meetings or similar conferences. That's what I was going to ask about. Have you met some of the people that you first were introduced to on Twitter? Absolutely. I mean, I can remember going to a conference. Uh, I think it was and they last... weren't all weird. They were oh, nice no, people. They were great. It, it was last summer. And I remember there was a, a small group of us who do similar work um, at this conference. And all of us who are very active on Twitter gravitated to one another and and really were communicating and sharing ideas and i almost realized it was at the exclusion of the people who weren't on twitter yeah but but think about it because you had a conversation that had been going on for a year prior and you just happened to increase the bandwidth of it for a few days and then you could go back to your slower uh, asynchronous communication but all of these other people were totally fret i mean they had not met any of you they had no idea uh what you were interested in, what your lives were about. So that barrier to beginning a conversation. So that's, I'm thinking of Bechter, maybe once a year can get to a conference in the field of interest. How much more valuable is that going to be if you get there and already have these relationships, these conversations started? That seems like a cool, a cool way to go to those conferences. Yeah. And, you know, I was blown away because I, I remember I was doing research for a workshop on Twitter for grad students. And I just put out there a call for whether or not people had established any meaningful research connections based on being on Twitter. And it blew me away. The number of people who had published papers together and written grants together. Got only jobs probably, gotten right? jobs only because of Twitter, of connections they made on Twitter. So I think that would be certainly my, my first recommendation. But then also you mentioned subreddits. There are a couple really good ones. Our, lab rats we like uh, the lab rat subreddit and also the grad school subreddit are both fairly active so um, you know those are some places to go to i tend to find that the conversation on those is a little more anonymous whereas the one on twitter i think is more geared towards being you and actually meeting real people who are presenting themselves as themselves if that makes sense yeah, that does. Now, you mentioned you have multiple Twitter accounts, Josh. Do you have one devoted to your Jello mold hobby? <laughs> I do. It's uh, One for board games, one for... Yeah, I have my board games one, and I have my... Uh, I don't know about all these. I'm going to go stalk you. I do. I do. Also, Dan, a great resource that actually we just found out about. Uh, one of our listeners, Danielle, sent us an email just today that is great timing, by the way, about a new Slack community that's specifically for grad students. And apparently this started just a few weeks ago. And for anyone who's not uh, familiar, Slack is is kind of an online chat platform, uh, usually centered around a, a unique topic. Um, you've probably heard us mention it, that we actually have a Slack channel just for our podcast patrons. Uh, but anyway, this new new grad student Slack was started just for this purpose, to form 
community and a hangout, an online hangout for just for graduate students. So you actually have to be a current grad student to join. So anyway, if you want to find out more information about that, you can go to gradstudentslack.wordpress.com and there's information there about what the Slack channel is all about and how you can join. So absolutely check that out. That might be just what you're looking for. Uh, all right, Josh, last but certainly not least, hello, hello, PhD. Would you consider doing a podcast over books that helped you through grad school? I think we'll stick to over beer. Over beer, right? <laughs> books that improved your writing skills, gave inspiring views of your fields, or helped you become a better scholar in other ways. Thank you for making Hello, PhD. It's a really insightful podcast and has become a valuable read, free of guilty feelings, part of how I relax now. Katie, a first-year graduate student. I saved this one for last, Josh, because I think... I would like to take this to the listening audience to give us some of their ideas, books that were helpful, and we can uh, maybe start some sort of hashtag. Yeah, so if you have a a book that you have read uh, recently or just at some point in your journey that you feel like has been really helpful or insightful for you during your graduate training, email that to us or, or tweet that to us. And if, you, and if you get on Twitter and do that, why don't you use the hashtag PhDbooks? And we will collect those and look over those and we'll share them on the next episode. Can I share some of mine now since I'm not a big tw- Twitterer? I would love for you to tweet them with the hashtag PhD books, but why don't you go okay, ahead and no, share? No, no, maybe that's a good challenge yeah, to me to get back go, on, get, get off go. my training wheels. Get are, you back still, are you still an egg or did you finally get a photo No, I'm there? still an egg. Okay, we'll work on that. Okay. Uh, you can always put your little Simpsons uh, Yeah, I have a Simpsons character. avatar. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Because that doesn't date me at all. I'll just do a Simpsons character of an egg. There was a big thing in the news about the Simpsons predicting the World Cup winner but that team lost both of those teams lost (laughs) maybe next time maybe next time all right josh well thank you for diving into the mailbag with me and we hope to hear from all of you remember if you have a question or a topic idea we'd love to hear it obviously because we are answering those uh, on the air email us at podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet at hellophd or you can leave us a message on the facebook page if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com and click on the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We appreciate the beer money. And thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons and Promega. Josh, I hope you have a great week. Thanks, Dan. I hope you do as well. Um, I'm getting ready to do some travel. I'll be in our nation's capital next week be exciting so any uh hello phd listeners around if they are they should let me know we can hang out so if you're in there let me know on twitter do hashtag hello phd goes to dc in 2018 (laughs) Uh, yeah if you're gonna be if you're in the dc area let me know i'd love to hang out with you all right josh well we will see you when you get back all right dan see you next time Thanks, Mailbox. We just got a letter. 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 Wonder who it's from.